Welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It has been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games out there that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on. It can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast, is to dig into the games that my guests and I enjoy playing, to talk about big industry events, and to talk to the people that make these fantastic games. Now, today is a long time in the making. I've reached out to this gentleman, our guest today. In the past, we've talked a bit um, with the release of some of the games that he's done way back when. But um, it's, it's great to actually have him on. And I am super excited about quite a few games that his company are literally about to put out. And so today's going to be a really cool dig into a whole slew of rule sets that I know something about, I know a fair bit about, but I am by no means an expert. It, it takes a really special kind of guy to run a game company, to be the CEO of an international, just massive game company that puts out tons and tons and tons of games every year, and to be as liked universally by his fan base, it's unheard of in the industry. Of course, if I'm talking about that, and I'm talking about a ton of game systems that are getting brand new releases, I have to be talking Mantic, and of course I'm talking to Ronnie Renton. Ronnie, welcome to Cast Dice. Well, wow. I'm not, I don't know how I'm going to live up to that introduction. So uh, can we just stop the interview now and I'll just take that and we'll just call that a wrap? Okay. Oh, I mean, seriously, though, Ronnie, you are universally loved, it seems, um, on all the Mantic Facebook pages that I look at anyway. And I've been following the Kings of War pages, quite a few of them for literally years and everyone loves to talk about you they they give you hats uh you wear them <laughs> they then steal them um you fly all the way down to australia you come to cancon to say hi and to hang out with fans of your game system you fly across the world that's amazing um what what led you to take this sort of front seat approach to CEO face of a game company uh, approach that you seem to have? I mean, a few things, I think. I think firstly, our fans are the people that make this company. I mean, Mantic has always been people-led, fan-led. Mm -hmm. We've always had a very close relationship with um, the people that like us. It's always been interactive even before you know Kickstarter came around, when we were releasing the first drafts of the Kings of War rules, we put them up free and you know shared them with Beasts of War, and the feedback came in. So always from the get-go, there was a community interaction. And mm -hmm. uh, now it's you know from rules committees that sit on our rule sets to make it even better and, and polish them and take feedback because who knows better than the people that are playing the game. Right. right. You know, so the first thing is, you know, kind of, and, and, and that spins off that I, I fly around the world. Firstly, we have just fantastic fans. People love what we do. We have a very approach where you can play a game and have a beer. It's not playing a game or having a beer. It's the, the, the games are designed so you can have both. It's exactly. designed to be fun. Yes. Competitive. And you know, my base, my, my baseline is backgammon. And you know, the idea of playing backgammon without having a drink in your hand is kind of um, alien to me. Exactly. And I think 
yeah rules are clear it's good fun but you're having a social time and engaging with the social time at the same time as you're you're exercising your mind and, and having some competitive play so we kind of attract those players so to spend time with them is is a is a pleasure for me but it's also there's no better way of me understanding what are people doing with their armies what type of games are they playing mm-hmm. i've walked around cancon and looked at the other games that were getting traction and which ones were starting to fade off not just ours but others so there's no better customer research than spending time and, and and now to the point that i actually get invited to stay at people's homes and i say yeah you know what why would i stay in a kind of holiday in hotel when someone's got a you know a bunker in the back of their house and they'll put me up and they'll show me their war games collection and i can see how they're uh, you know what they're doing with their terrain crate figures how are they making their kings of war army so from enjoying a beer to celebrating with our fans and and, and passing on uh, information and and usually they've got a few beers in me so i leak all manner of things that i shouldn't say and i get in trouble from the marketing guys mm-hmm. when i get home through to to first-hand market research, seeing the retail stores, seeing what's actually happening in people's collections. It's its absolutely a pleasure. And I've always enjoyed traveling. It's its something I enjoy doing. You know, I've got to be careful because it's, you know, work-life balance. But yeah. as, as long as I can keep it um, in check, um, it, it, it works from a business and from a, from a personal point of view. That's amazing, man. And that's not something that I've literally, and I've, I've worked, I mean, we both worked for Games Workshop over the years in corporate. We've both uh, worked in different companies uh, in the gaming industry. I have never heard of another leader of a company doing anything close to that. And I'm pretty sure you are too, you would say the same thing. I, I'm blown away. So before I just keep singing your praises, let me pivot, <laughs> let me pivot on that to something else you talked about a minute ago, which is one of the first things I wanted to talk about today. Now, quite a few game systems uh, and game companies have very large fan bases, all of whom are filled with players who have an opinion about what should happen in the game. Um, and everyone says, oh God, I wish the company did, or the company did this. I wish they did this with the rules. I wish this, I wish that. And a lot of game companies uh, have closed doors and they have um, their their studios, they have their rules writers uh, behind, you know, behind the, the castle wall, so to speak. And they make sure that, you know, there is, that things are played tested that things are you know they try and balance things they try and make things uh appealing to play that they're fun but they don't necessarily always interact with the fan base now games workshop is another great example of a company that started to do that better in recent years and they've been getting lots of praise and accolades for it but let's talk about what mantic's done because it is truly revolutionary. You not only got the master of the easy to pick up rules that have depth and you can keep playing master himself, Alessio, write Kings of War for you. You then got a group of passionate, uh, knowledgeable players. You put them together and you, you created what you called the rules committee, which you were talking about a minute ago, who then... Yep manage the game, um, shepherd the game, and make sure that things are balanced, things aren't broken, and you constantly, I mean, look, people love to talk about how Games Workshop these days is putting up point uh, adjustments and constant FAQs. You guys did it first. Um, you have your Clash of King books that comes out every year for um, Kings of War that gives 
the the audience an updated set of the rules, balances things that need balancing, and add new units, add new magic items, add the story. It's amazing. Yeah, and, it, and it, it, it's amazing. I mean, I think we were, on, on your points, I think we were the trailblazers on here. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes the doors start to close when the hobbyist wants something and the company wants to do something else largely financially driven. Yeah. <laughs> As in, we just want you to keep buying soldiers and here's a new gang and here's a new gang or here's a new team, here's a new team. Mm-hmm. And the, the more you pedal that, the more closed you get because the audience is saying, well, wait a second, but you, you, you're you kind of damaging <laughs> what we're doing here, not enhancing it. Right. And so very early on, you know, our motto was very much, look, we've got to be involved in the audience because we're going to take them on this journey with us. You know, there's plenty of alternatives out there and ours are on a constantly improving and developing and refining basis we want a great rule set early on and sometimes that takes a first or second edition kings of war was first um i think dead zone which is a very very popular game and mm-hmm. um, i don't think it was right until the second edition i think we just overcomplicated it was a shame because i think that game would have absolutely blown the doors off if we'd got the second edition out when the first edition came out right. you know but that's how you learn. Walking Dead mm-hmm. is four years old, but it's absolutely rock solid. And if you and, it, and each game caters to to different audiences, you know. Um, Kings of War is your mass battle, properly mass battle. And you know, the end of lockdown, that was when me and Rob and everyone else had gone, and I just used the time to, to paint the gaming table. I don't know if you'd seen it, but mm-hmm. I'd had an urge to get our studio terrain really freshened up and cleaned up and. Um, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and that's where I went to because I had time. Because there was, this, you know, no going out in the evenings or no travelling for the first time in, in thirty years. I was actually at home, and I, I, I could find some hobby time, of, and it was fantastic. Similarly, the game I was playing with my twelve-year-old son was The Walking Dead, because go. I can pop it out. He knows how to play. Well, he knows how to play. He kicks the living daylights out of me these days. I can't really <laughs> get any. You know, he rocks up, picks his figures, rolls his dice, kills me, walks off and carries on playing his Xbox. And I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, that's how it is now. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, what you play and what you hobby are all different. But they're... so, yeah, I think that if you're not immersed in your community, I think you, you really miss what's really going on. And I think, um, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to send a bill to Games Workshop for kind of, you know, marketing support because everything mm-hmm. we do seems to be two years later they start doing it so um so you know but i think it, it, it's critical if you're not talking to your audience you're not you're not you're not you're not going to be getting the product right often enough and for us that's uh, and it's very you know, it's not easy to manage a rules committee and a game designer because they have different views and if your rules committee is too tournament organized too tournament orientated mm-hmm. you don't get fun and, and new development because everything is about refining it to the point of being perfect, which yeah. it never can be because, but at the same time, if it's too narrative and creative, you start losing the uh, tournament audience because it's just, Hey, here's an, here's an army. That's what I'm going to play. And it's going to win eight times out of 10, mm-hmm. nine times out of 10, because I found the, you know, the slight points errors and I've mm-hmm. spammed it this way and I've spammed it that way. And, um, so it's a it's a fine line. It's hard work. It is, but you know, rewarding when you get it right. Absolutely. Uh, 
Well, let's let's lean into a couple things. Ronnie, you are wonderful for giving me talking points. I just I just listen and then ask start asking again. Um, now, one of the things, and if I can be slightly if I can bring up a a a, a topic of uh, it might be a little rough to start with, but st- stick with me here for a second. One of the wonderful things about Kings of War uh, Second Edition was that it sort of dropped around the same time as the death of another mass battle game, and a lot of people oh. migrated across because it closely resembled the game that they knew and loved. Um, one of the great things about the original Kings of War, sort of second ed, which is when I picked it up, uh, came along, was it was, it, it wasn't miniature agnostic. You guys make lots of great miniatures, but you embraced the audience jumping from other game systems and their armies by creating miniature agnostic armies within your game so that other people could come and play with their toy soldiers. And in doing so, you had this wonderfully inclusive rule set but in, in including everything, you didn't necessarily have the story. And a lot of people, when they first tried it, said, yeah, it's great, but I want more fluff and more narrative. And you guys have been providing that. I mean, you got friend of the show, Mark Marber, to do some great writing for you, of uh, both um, yeah. of novels. And now with third edition, Panathor is fully fleshed out. There's And you're just yeah. pulling back page and page and page of fluff and story. And you're giving people exactly the biggest criticism of was a what was a great streamlined battle game. And when I say streamlined, it's clean. It's it's got tactical yep. depth. It's a great game. But people are like, yeah, I want I want a little fluff here. And you've been providing that in spades. Can you talk to us about yep. that process and how that came into being? Well, actually, there's two. I think there's two processes there that I'll I'll talk about. The first is the, the clean rule set, and because Alessio and I had worked together when I was running the studio, um, I, I don't even remember, but in '96, 40k got a genuinely second edition, mm-hmm. and I remember playing that at Rick Priestley's house very, very early on. It was the six-inch move, and then into the combat and the shooting. Mm-hmm. It was very, very, very different. Than, until that point, it had been Warhammer in space, basically. You know, yes. um, Warhammer never, ever, ever got a proper second edition. It was always an evolution from the base game that I had a pre-order for back in 1981. Black <laughs> and white. True. Toughness, not numbers. And, and you know, I've got every collection since. And so when I sat down with Alessio, I very much thought that the opportunity for a clean rule set, a genuine second edition, knowing what we know as rules writers now and as designers now, mm-hmm. he was well-placed to write something that was a genuine evolution. And I think he did it. And it came out as an eight-page booklet with a few little army lists. But, you know, we had some some uh, German fans over on the day we were playtesting it. And I said, well, yeah, you know, join in. Here you go. Have some fun. Let's let's play, Christian uh, and Dennis. And, and then... By turn two, they were like, just get out of our way. We're rolling dice here. <laughs> and you think, <laughs> nice. okay, they've got it. And so right from very early on, there was a very, very powerful engine that was a 2.0 mass battle fantasy game. Mm-hmm. It was uh, written by a guy with more experience than nearly anybody, you know, other than Rick in the in the world. So I knew I had something. The thing was, what I realized was between one and uh, one and two, when we were lining up to do the second edition, the real sticking point was the investment that people had made in their armies. Yeah. And and the rule set. 
And so I'm turning up here saying, hey, why don't you switch over to new armies and to new rule sets? And then we're going, well, Ron, I've got a rule set and I've got an army. Thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. I might pick up some of your models to add to mine or have a bit of fun with it. But, it's you know, your undead army is fantastic and I might build one of those for variety. So when Games Workshop, I don't talk to about that, but when that other company went round based, mm-hmm. I thought, well, wait a second here. People have made huge investments in their army. They've built it. They've painted it. They've collected it. They love it. They own it. We've got a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to welcome those people into our gaming system because now's the time, if ever they're going to try it, particularly if you're invested with hundreds of hours of square bases, mm-hmm. now's the time. You'll give it a try. And I think people went three ways. Some went to Sigmar, some went to Ninth Age, but others wholesale jumped into Kings of War. And Australia did it. Uh, the South and uh, some of the Northeast and Northwest of America did it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, And then suddenly you've got a tournament scene and then, and then big chunks of the UK. And because they felt welcomed with their army, they tried the rules. And actually at the time we were probably doing less fantasy plastics than we'd ever done you know it's probably our kind of slight moratorium and two hit that's why we very quickly got uncharted empires out to welcome all those other armies mm-hmm. but i realized at that point it wasn't the story that people wanted it was the rules because they had their army exactly i need to play so that's why we went that way so that the first one is start with a great rule set we knew we had that one sec then following that up with um Following that up with then welcoming everybody with the army they have, we got a customer, we got a, an install gamer base. From the gamer base, you can start building up the story. Exactly. Without a gamer base, you have an audience. And so that's why not only did we start building the audience up through, we usually do two books a year. The summer book, more narrative, summer campaign. We've run one of those. We would have run one this year, but we obviously, COVID people couldn't play. Right. But we would have done a book called Halpy's Rift, which would have been focused on magic. There was a the, the, uh, big story, but the, the rats have been digging. Oh, did I say rats? The goblins have been mm-hmm. digging deep and have uncovered. They've dug too deep and they've uncovered and unlocked a kind of vein of magic in this area. So we've thrown in a bit more magic because the core rules are kind of magic simple. Mm-hmm. It has an effect. It's not overwhelming. We never want it to be. But we've kind of unlocked a little bit more choice there. And we're going to run a summer campaign. And then in the December, it used to be January, February, but we had got feedback from the audience to say, listen, we need the book in December so that come January, all the qualifying events for that year can play with the new rules. Right. So there's a book, the Clash of Kings book, comes out in December each year with all the tweaks. And because it's at the end of a year's worth of gaming, the rules committee have seen what was too tough, what isn't fun to play against, um, what doesn't have an obvious, you know, um, uh, you know, takeout, and mm-hmm. and they they write that book, and so that book usually comes out. As it is this year, we've combined those two because we don't have enough content to do a full Clash of Kings book. Right. And at the same time, you know, it's a good opportunity for people that are more gamey orientated to get some more lore. Mm-hmm. So we've smashed those two things together, put the Clash of Kings book in Help His Rift book. Great load of stories. That's coming out. I think you know, there's a great, great timing next month in October. That'll be up. That's so right. get on there. It'll be short February from Friday. Um, and then and alongside that, games like Vanguard, 
which mm-hmm. is where you're taking your eight crack squad and doing small little missions. Suddenly you're not painting 150 miniatures, you're painting 10. That's right. And that brings in a new And these are narrative battles. These are the skirmishes before the big battle. They take out their uh, watchtowers, take out their supply lines, and go capture the giant. So there's really evocative little games that draw you deep into Panithor. And then I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but, you know, two-thirds of the, three-thirds of the planet in Panathor is covered in sea. So the mm-hmm. next thing you'll want is... So we're both doing it with licenses, with, um, you know, people writing books, you know, going to Sarver and a couple of great books in the, uh, in the world. We've got games developing it. And so along the way, we're starting building up that backstory to make the... The, the central case a bit more compelling a lot more compelling more fun and the, the world you know we started with dwarf cells each level the basileans there are humans mm-hmm. you know the abyss there are bodies but these are our own unique twist on it they're not someone else's dwarfs they're not someone but by now the humans are just standard humans the the, the baddies are our own it's the abyss the abyssal dwarfs and the story evolves and builds it does. It does. And one of the uh, one of the big races that was talked about in Uncharted Territories um, and was talked about in the fluff. And there were a couple of models that popped up here and there for Vanguard. But until next month, have never had a full model range released by Mantic. You uh, you hinted at them digging earlier. My favorite uh, or one of them. Ratmen. We are getting uh, the Ratkin list, uh, but not just the list because that's been around since second, second Ed. But the whole a whole box set there uh, with Halpy's Riff. There's going to be a new starter game, right? Where we have goblins and we have Ratkin. So it's um it's the goblin releases are currently going mad. We've just done some absolutely fantastic plastic goblins. If you haven't seen them, go have a look. They are oh, they are awesome. just very sexy. Mm. Yeah, and uh, and this is us bringing online, uh, you know, our kind of plastics at the standard we want them to be at now. And like I say, there was a little hiatus in the middle there where we couldn't quite get them consistently as good as we wanted them to be. And mm-hmm. I think the old Basilians and the old Goblin sprues were two of our weaker sprues. Um, now. Luigi and the studio team are just smashing it out of the park. The tools are coming out fantastic. And that then allows us to, to be confident. We had the Abyssal Dwarfs earlier in the year. Absolutely awesome. First time baddie dwarfs have ever been done in plastic. And been they very popular. great. Yeah. And, and so now the stories and the, the IP is becoming our own. And, and the armies are taking on their own character. And, and, and so... You know, we, we feel confident enough that you know Ratkin is is a great place to go. They kind of come out of the slaves of being the Abyssal Dwarf slaves, and then mm-hmm. because they breed so quickly, have slowly started creating their own. And be, with us, we actually did them first in space because of the vermin That's up right. in space. Uh, so you know, they were always in there with ours, very very popular, and now they've they've come into our um, into the fantasy setting. So it's largely down to the quality of the plastics, and that came about. You know, with things like with Vanguard, because the commitment from us, if I do an army in the past, that was hard plastic. Mm-hmm. You need lots and lots of sculpts. You need war machines, big monsters, everything. Mm-hmm. To undertake an army was a very big risk. Whereas with Vanguard, 
Matt and the studio were able to say, well, look, Ron, we only need 10 sculpts. Let me have a little go at it. Let me have a look at it. And so I'd always had the idea of Night Store because I thought it was very powerful mm-hmm. and I don't think it had been done. And so I was always a yes to that. Vaseleans, we wanted to redo the plastics there and we had a lot of great stories because they're kind of our, they are our stepping off point for where humanity or part of humanity is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's quite overbearing. It's kind of the... Um, you know, 16th century Spanish Inquisition type stuff, mm-hmm. but they are the ones up there fighting against the abyss. So they're the goodies. Sometimes they're so goody, they're not goody anymore, but they are the, <laughs> the important. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I don't remember, I remember what the third army was, and then the fourth was Northern Alliance. I remember what the third army was, actually, such a long time ago. But I was always a bit dubious about the Northern Alliance. It was just when, you know, um, the soldiers from the other side at wall were there in the whole fire and ice stuff. And I said, look, I don't want it to be derivative of, of that. I want to right. make something our own. And and they kind of bullied me. They talked me around and said, no, no, look, this is where we're going to take it. It's, you know, the kind of hippie commune living living together, elves, dwarfs, and uh, humans living together in this space and they're protecting this and this is their store. And I went, okay, you know what? Because it's Vanguard, because I don't have to commit to the whole army, here you go. And when I saw it, of course, it was the best... Um, it was just fantastic. It was totally unique. It totally put a stamp on an area that was unexplored to that point. Mm-hmm. It had a real impact with the abyss. It drew on nature. You know, it drew on that, um, you know, the good, the bad, and the nature is the three points of the triangle in our world. Mm-hmm. And they were nature good. So they were in harmony with nature um, and, and aligned to good. Whereas, you know, the Basileans are more uh, good but they don't give a damn about nature. It's this is what good is and everything else is wrong. Mm-hmm. So again, the, the sculpts are fantastic. So suddenly, okay, let's turn that into an army. Northern Lions came out last year as an army. Um, I remembered it was the Abyss was the, was the other um, race mm-hmm. for Vanguard. We've all done some, some in there so we could dig deeper into that. So, um, yeah, I can't remember how I got ranting on that, but um, <laughs> we were talking Ratkin. Ah, yes. Ah, yes. Well, obviously, what I tried to do is divert everybody away from that because Ratkin definitely don't exist. They're, they're, they're never to be seen anywhere. I don't know what you're talking about. Read, read the Panathor Pilgrim newspaper. Clearly, there is no Ratkin, mm-hmm. although they might be appearing in a two-player set coming out in October in a retail store near you. So uh, definitely <laughs> no truth in that room. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than there's just some gorgeous plastics, nice. little tees in the two-player set, and then a whole army perhaps. Perhaps, obviously, I'm not saying anything in, in the early New Year. So keep your eyes peeled. Could That's be fun. Right. Cough, cough, nothing to see here. Um, sorry, let me uh, let me back out of that one quietly then. Let's uh, let's talk about one of the main reasons why you are here today. Um, now, as many of you know, or if you've never listened to this show before, uh, I am the host of the Warlord Games official podcast. And uh, for that show, I've spoken to a man named Gabriel several times about a game that he's put out called Black Seas. How excited was I a couple of, well, a week or so ago to find out all of the fantastic news about Kings of War Armada, which is a collaboration with Warlord and using their rule set, you guys have taken it and you've added the fantasy element. You've taken uh, the wonderful Black Seas game and you've put it directly in a fantasy environment 
So you're getting dwarf ships, you're getting orc ships, you're getting uh, undead fleets. All of that, it, it is it is amazing. It is fantastic. I'm so excited to ask you a million questions about it. But let's start with the obvious one. How did you get there? I mean, you've mentioned that Panathor is largely covered with water. But, yeah. I mean, clearly something had to happen besides a map on the wall. How did you get to this place? Well, I think there was there was my thought process was a couple of things. We had a great release of Kings of War last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we sold particularly the books. We sold an awful lot of books and have continued to sell the books throughout the year. As people are, you know, kind of looking at this overnight sensation that's Kings of War that's only taken ten years to get here, <laughs> yeah. uh, and and kind of picking up the rule set, looking at it and thinking about it. How did we pull something up against that? How do we get something that, you know, that went direct to trade? This isn't Kickstarter. This, you know, Kings of War is now a trade product. How did I get something that was exciting that could 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 go toe to toe with that? Um, particularly in the time we had, um, because, you know, the, that Kings of War was far and ahead of our expectations in terms of the, the, the units we sold. You know, it sold outsold second edition already. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, and at the same time, how did we, and as what we were talking about before, deepen the story of Panithor? How do we tell a new story? And mm. um, I think that's when I was thinking about that problem. And at the same time, I was chatting for Warlord guys about you know various things. I know Johnny's a neighbour of mine, and we mm-hmm. occasionally go out for beer. Um, been chatting with Gabriel, and they done very well with this Black Seas game. And I realized that, of course, that being historical layers was pretty boxed in, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of there's French, Spanish, English, a um, um, bit of American, but you're pretty much done pretty quickly. But it had been very well received. They'd, they'd sold out the first wave. They were mm-hmm. waiting for some restocks. And I thought, well, look, there's a rule set that people like. We're very good at, at taking something and, and actually editing it, and refining it and developing it through our rules committees and through our kind of minimalist aesthetic. And the reason we do that is because then you can have infinite choice on the fleets you can do. Right. Whereas you can have a bit more complexity when there's really only one fleet, which is, you know, 17th century, 18th century boats mm-hmm. with cannons. We're going to have all manner of craziness, ramming, ram speeds, orcs, doing one thing, dwarfs having steam power. And so we need a cleaner rule set simply so we can add the complexity later in, mm-hmm. later on through the army lists. That's right. And it also gave us a scale that we knew resonated. You know, I think if you go back as far as Man of War, for me, it was always a bit small. And it was small because that's what you could make in the time in metal. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You, make metal, you know, you'd kill someone with it if you were, if you mm-hmm. dropped, you know, it, punch a hole through from England to Australia. So you couldn't you couldn't go any bigger. So it was governed by the materials you could work in at the time. Um, Black Seas had, had gone, looked at it, decided on a scale, and clearly the scale had resonance because of the ships they'd sold. Exactly. So it was a rule set to work on. In some ways, we kind of paired it back from where it was to add further depth and complexity through army lists and through the fact that you now need flying creatures or or whatever else is coming with it. Certainly a lot more attack options and, and that kind of thing. Um, it doesn't need to be historically accurate. It needs to be insane and fantasy and fun. And we, we get some latitude. Similarly, it builds on the story. And thirdly, we were going to do it in resin. So 
the scale would would be the same that, that those guys worked in. Exactly. And and so from every level, I just kind of joined the dots, got very excited about it, and on the way they went. Now I, I've listened to a a, a, a podcast um, episode where they interviewed the author of your version, and I've done a little bit of research, and I know a lot of people have questions about how they're different. So I'm just going to uh, read read a couple of bullet points, real that real fast, Ronnie, and then I'll ask you to talk about them if that's all right. Um, yeah, perfect. So a lot of people have asked, how are the two games different? Well, for one thing, Kings of War, you roll differently. Um, it's You're still using the D10 system that is in Black Seas. Um, now I'm going to reverse it that I'm saying it out loud. But I believe in Kings of War, you want to roll low, whereas in Black Seas, you want to roll high. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a statute on the, on the ships, and you're beating the score, I think. Exactly. Um, and so yeah, uh, they... So, the they it's switch it. Black... Sorry, go ahead. And Armada. Sorry, is the difference between Armada and Black Seas, or is the question the difference between Kings of War and Armada? Um, Black Seas and Armada. Right, okay. Yeah, okay. I, so I the think numbers Black... reversed is what I'm trying to say. So if, you are, if you're a Black Seas player, the very first thing you're going to notice is you need to roll the opposite way. So you, normally you would need to roll high, um, for Armada, you would need to roll low, or maybe I'm getting that reversed. Sorry. Regardless, it's the opposite direction. Um, the, another thing is if you are playing with the advanced wind rules that are in black seas, as I know a lot of people do, they really enjoy that part of the game. Um, one of the things that they stripped back was they use the basic wind rules from black seas, because you have to, if you're going to start uh, incorporating, as Ronnie said, all of those fantastic elements that aren't in the Black Seas universe that simply don't exist in reality. Um, but yeah. the weapons don't just, as Ronnie said, you don't just have cannons. Um, there are indirect firing mortars. You have uh, bolt throwers and all sorts of fantastical lightning bolt throwing uh, mages and weapon systems attached to the ships. So clearly that is different. But the way that you maneuver in the game, the way that you move, um, how the shooting largely works is the same. Yeah. You still have ships that are inexperienced. You have ships that are sort of regular and you have veteran just like you do in Black Seas. But in uh, Armada, there's an extra added element of adding magical items, um, special captains, and special ships that those captains ride in, in addition to a whole list of upgrades that you can give both magical and regular to really make those ships individual. So you not only have the three levels of veterancy, but you have tons of different options both sort of as a general and then specifically sort of a general list that all ships can pull from but then also you have specific upgrades for each race that you can pull from as well so you can really tease out and individualize your ships ronnie am i getting this right yeah no you're getting it absolutely right you know some of the things that we've got to factor in is that the orcs ram you they just get close boarding action get stuck in and so you can't have quite as much random element with the wind, particularly when you're first playing. Right. So the base level, we've just pulled the wind back. If you're in the wind, you get initiative. 
Now, mm-hmm. that's a big advantage because if you're an orc ship, you want to get in there and close. So keeping with the wind, you've got to be mindful of it. And it just changes, of course, just to mess you up. All of the advanced rules for wind are in there. They're in the advanced set. So once you've got your basic game underway and you want to take it on to the next level, it's all there. Brilliant. Knock yourselves out. Brilliant. But it also gives us those first few games. Because in the other one, all the ships are roughly the same, same play style. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not true in this game. So the four fleets we've got play very very differently, and of course it would be a huge advantage in the early games if the dwarf didn't have to worry about the wind. Well, now because of the initiative they still do, so they, they're not always going to go first. Doesn't matter because um, it, that can change. So, um, and 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 then yeah, you touched on it. There's different weapons. So for any given fleet, I'm just going to pull some of the cards up here. You can't see them, but you. The way you, you look at it is you start with the fleet cards. I'm just going to get you an example. Right, here's an orc fleet rule set, okay? So you've got your orc boats, but there's in the two-player set, you get the orc fleet rules and the Basilean fleet rules, mm-hmm. and you get good smattering of the medium and small ships because we can give you more of those ships. And then to upgrade that to a full starter set, you just need to add one of their medium, medium one of their large ships, right? which is the... Uh, which is the abbess. So, and then that means you can then just add the booster and you've got a full fleet, but you know, you've got all the rules right from the get go. All fleet rules, ram. During his activation, this ship may deliberately attempt a collision with an enemy ship and will always fail its skill test to evade when doing so. So straight away, one of the all fleet rules, if it's got a ram option, in it goes and it's easier for them to do. Ensnared. A ship attempting to disengage from a grapple with the ship has a minus two modifier. In other words, once the orcs get hold of you, they ain't letting you go. Mm -hmm. The orcs are going to pile onto your boat. They're going to take it. That is far more, uh, you know, a style of a way of playing than you would get, say, in Black Seas, where the grappling, no one has a minus two, you know, and and it's harder to, to board and everything else because no one would be as aggressive as an orc in close combat. Right. You then add the Basilean fleet rules, Iron Resolve. Uh, they've got nerve tests. They just don't run. Halo of light, helping hands, well drilled. Then they've got upgrades. Your captain's upgrades you were talking about. Uh, Spectra von, uh, Katrina von Spectra. She's got a point there. May, may, may make a free single move step after all ships are deployed. So everybody has their own little unique styles that are governed on their fleet packs. And then you've got your own ships, which not only have stat lines, you know, so the dictator class boat, um, and then that can be upgraded to the Hegemon's Fury, which is a legendary boat. Mm-hmm. Um, then you've got the Aloe sloop squadrons, and these can have little upgrades, as you mentioned, be magical, be an experienced captain, or whatever else. And there's ones that are generic, and then there's ones that are race specific as well. So you're going to get a degree of um, uh, personalization of your army, of your fleet, in a way that you don't get in other games without it being overwhelming, without it being too much. You know, there's me abyss, but I particularly like you know this style of play, so I'm going to double down on that. I'm going to make sure my captain has that. I, I want that certainty of shooting, so I'll take some sharpshooter skills. So it's really good in that, in, in those senses. Um, and, and then the other big thing we've done is because the Kings of War community 
are very used to the kind of unit bases. Mm-hmm. We've actually we've doubled down on the bases and that they are now on square bases, which gives you exact sizes. So the measurements are a little bit more precise. Mm-hmm. So when you wheel, you've just got that exactness because the back of your boat is now a flat line. That's right. So your angle to turn is that bit sharper and it's a bit more precise, a bit more exact, which I think people like. And you also, because you have a base, your broadside is now clearer. It's directly in line with your the edge of your base. Exactly. So you As you that. say, a clean rule set and that and having those yeah. clean demarcations on the base, very clean, easy, you know right off the bat what you got. Yeah. And, and I think people really like that. We like that. And actually, one of the things that we, we, we've just confirmed up is that we're going to write a, a set of kingdoms of men rules. So that our Basileans are, are, like I've told you, central to our kind of storyline. Mm-hmm. They live on the edge of the area where men largely populate, although they're dotted throughout, which is more of a kind of uh, mismatch. Um, but that's called the kingdoms of men. And that's where you'll find all the different... Uh, People that are using armies from all different games and historical games, because well, they probably live in there, and mm-hmm. that's where they're coming. And so we're going to use the Black Sea fleet and release those um, as a Kingdoms of Men fleet, Fantastic. where it's not quite as militaristic. It's more of a trading fleet, more of a you know kind of you know, naval town that's that's got its boats out there and is and is messing around. So you will be able to try your King your Black Seas fleet in Armada without having to buy a new fleet if you want. Amazing. You'd be mad not to buy a whole new fleet of dwarfs because who doesn't want more dwarfs in their lives? But should you have such perversions, then, yeah, great. You might have to stick them on a square base to try it properly, but you can just, you know, blue tack them on. And away you can play and you'll be able to play Armada exactly as is. And then they'll be coming out quite quickly on the tail of the thing. You should buy a pack of cards and now you can upgrade all your ships and away you go. So really? it'll give everyone that plays Black Seas a very easy option to give to give um, Armada a try. Now, another thing that you guys have brought over from Kings of War, one of the things that is fantastic about Kings of War and makes it very different from lots of other rank and flank games are the missions. It's In fact, talking to friend of the show, Patch, earlier today, he was talking about how great um, the, the missions are for Kings of War 3rd Edition. He loves them. And it's one of the things that I've noticed about the missions for or the scenarios that you've put into Armada and how they are different from Black Seas. Not to say that there's a problem with the Black Seas missions. I like them a lot. But with you guys, you have 10 missions in the book. And within those 10 missions, there are some really narrative, fantastic uh, stories that can play out on the tabletop, like raiding uh, a, a city, getting the loot, and then getting out, or um, two ambassadors from two different nations meeting up in the middle of the ocean, but then something goes wrong, and all of a sudden, the ambassador ships need to uh, get away from each other. Meanwhile, the rest of the fleet that's surrounding them is all of a sudden arming to bear pointing guns at one another so again I, I can see the tv episodes or the movies where these things are happening in my head super cinematic and it just it, it brings the game to life um how did yeah. that come about well i think this is something that i mean particularly matt um leads the way on in terms of um obviously there's the lineup and fight and the mm-hmm. first few times you play, that's how you play. And often for your pickup matches, it's yeah. just a safe 
If you're enjoying the game, let's go there. But we, we, we know that quite a lot of people play with the same people time and time and again. Mm-hmm. And also, um, when second edition of Kings of War came out, I flew. I, I was in America and I flew down over the weekend to San Antonio to see the Alamo GT, mm-hmm. which was the last event before they switched over to Kings of War. So I was kind of over there to uh, wave the flag and to make sure that no one got cold feet and they didn't decide to carry on playing other rubbish games and we're going to come <laughs> over to Kings of War. So yep. I was on a kind of um, you know peacekeeping mission. And, and I just, how much fun the tournament organizer had had with the scenarios that he was making. And it was all about breweries and beer and giants getting drunk and rumbling around the battlefield and stomping on top of your troops. And I realized that while there was people there wanting to play, for to win there was also an awful lot of fun being had with a lot of people who knew they were never going to win and just wanted to drink beer with their buddies play games and the random element added some narrative storyline to a line up and fight battle you capture the giant take over the brewery grab the beer and actually all of them linked together and kind of from that point onwards i've just been a lot more relaxed and and embracing of narrative stories. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, we're getting pretty good to say, look, these five are pretty competitive. If you're a tournament organizer and everyone wants to take it seriously, these go here. Right. If you're having a Saturday afternoon with two or three friends, play this one. And, you know, you play it this way first and then reverse roles. So, you know, one that's trying to attack and take the town over and rob the gold um, and then swap uh, particularly in Vanguard, you know, you've got one where you've got to try and disrupt their um, um, gunpowder and munitions that are coming in, and there's three carts. So we say, look, play it twice. Play it once where you defend, play it once where you attack. And the gaming experience you'll have with both is so different because one is about what you do and the other one is about how you respond to it. And then all of a sudden you totally change roles. And it's and it's a great way of... of um, of, of enjoying a core game experience while at the same time uh, keeping it fresh and making your minds engaged so it's not just move, rule, shoot, you mm. know, all about position. Now, I have to ask, uh, I, I am a massive, as much as I'm loving these scenarios and I know that you've adapted the the giant um, scenario you just talked about, I know that one of the new scenarios for Armada is similar. I got to know, though, Black Seas just came out with my favorite, one of my favorite releases for that game, which was Terrors from the Deep, which was the Sea yeah. Monsters uh, expansion. Please tell me there we're going to have um, the things that dwell on the edges of maps um, where men yeah. fear to tread. Please tell me that's coming to the game because that is go- like it's the perfect universe for that. Yeah, well, and interestingly, two things, of course, because we do have a water realm. The Trident Realms is a mm-hmm. water-based empire so but when we do that we're talking about you know giant turtles with huge big howders on the back Brilliant. you know that, that pop out and there's actually a book um of the trident realms there's also a, a book from wings that are coming with this release and it's supposed to be very very good um written by a current person who's in the navy or was in the navy so he's got all of the um nautical terms right but um an old sweat on a basilean ship i think which is going to be great fun but what we've got here is um, the Terrors in the Deep 
we were literally talking about it yesterday about whether we just pop those out as a little expansion or put them in a summer book if we if, if, if there's enough clamor and we've, we've got enough people getting excited about the game we could love love, love to do a, a summer campaign summer book they could mm-hmm. go in there they've got those sculpts but simply if we do the trident realms what do we want to pick up and how do we work them in but yeah, for sure they'll be coming out at some point. We'll either use the Warlord ones or we'll add some new ones or, or whatever else. But I think the, the scenario you were talking about was, was it Capture the Kraken or Kill yes, the Kraken? that's it. But, uh, yeah, that's 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 starting to... Uh, and that's just where there's another random element of that's the one where you know, the Seamons just turns up and starts battering you. And so just when you think you've got it in the bag, um, something else entirely happens. Well, I pulled my Kraken out of my Terrors of the Deep box, and I literally have it sitting on my priming board, literally because I heard that that mission is in the Armada box. So very happy about that. Yeah, exactly. Get it painted. Mm -hmm. Well, I know you talked about the ships being resin earlier, but I want to quickly sort of come back to that. Um, You guys, as you said, you guys have been developing and really honing your, um, your, your plastics and your resins over the years, and you've come to a really good place with that. And you're, you're, you're coming out with highly detailed models for Armada. And we've seen, you know, what the, the renders look like. We've seen some of the actual ships. They look fantastic. They are the same size as Black Seas, which are, you know, big enough to paint. They're lovely, but they're also not the biggest models in the world. And so to have that level of detail is, is fantastic to see. And in, in a very, and, and I do say this with a lot of love, and I, and I am a, a Warlord shameless fanboy, but my God, how nice is it going to be to put those ships together with no rat lines? Um, <laughs> yes, very excited about that. And I love that because it is resin, you're able to do a wider variety of sculpts. Um, mo- much of the original Black Seas range, because it's plastic and because plastic is by definition expensive to tool the first time you do it, you can mass produce yep. it, sure, but you don't get as much variety. I'm excited to see what you guys are doing because you are, by the material that it, the, the game is being produced in, you're going to have that variety. And you also talked about the legendary ships and uh, the captains earlier, but there's alternate parts. It's not just that you get a different card for the ship. Yeah. You get that too, but there's alternate parts to make the ship visually different on the tabletop. So you can buy that same ship twice and it's going to look different and they'll have different stats, right? Yeah. And in the basic fleet, there's sometimes some options just in my build two ways. But for example, at some point there'll be XL ships coming out. These mm-hmm. are like the big monster HMS Trafalgar size, even just big and huge. And they, they come with to build out options entirely, one of which is the uh, standard XL class ship, mm-hmm. and then one of them is the named legendary ship. Um, and so, if you're going to fight a huge, big, you know, weekend battle where you go crazy, you know, you might have a couple of those. One which is the general's named loaded out ship, mm-hmm. and then one which is just a normal XL ship. Then you can have, you know, half a dozen. Um, large ships and God knows how many mediums and smalls. And, you know, right. you'll be there all weekend having an absolutely terrific battle. So yeah, there is the bigger the ship gets, the more um, loadout options there are from at the lower end, just with token upgrades through to the XL ships, which have totally different um, options to build it um, in, in, into specific legendary kit outs. And because it's resin, you know, the, the, the sales go in, 
it's going to allow us to go back to fleets and quite quickly amend the tool to give it a different type of fighting style or mm-hmm. or a car. So, you know, one of the things I'm keen to do is, is, is you know, where else can we take the Basilean fleet? What else can we do with the Dwarf fleet? Um, you know, submarines, etc. Let's this we can really have some fun with the fleets we've got, uh, as well as introducing new ones. And that's certainly, you know, the plan is to to mine both of those. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, that's exciting. And I'm, 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 I'm hoping to see some abyssal dwarf action on the seas at some point. But uh, that's just the old chaos dwarf player and me coming out. The big hats, gotta love them. Um, well, Ronnie, uh, I, I literally just got a Mantic box in the mail the other day, and I I can't not talk about it. One of the cool things that you guys are doing is actually game adjacent. It isn't necessarily for any game system in particular, but it, it services games across the board. Um, and that's your yeah. Terrain Crate line. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because it's such a good idea, and it's you get a box of terrain, uh, that you can assemble, you can use for a variety of game systems, and it's a huge line. How did this come to be? <laughs> Probably two or three things. Um, firstly, and I think we talked about it earlier, I have a, I have a terrain fetish. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, actually, the best moment of a war game is when you've got beautiful gaming tables. Your enemy's got all of his painted figures set up on the other side of the board. Mm-hmm. You've got your figures all set up. And I kind of drop down to eye line and I stand behind my army and I look through the trees and I look over the battlefield and see the other army on the other side. And for just a fraction of a second, I think I'm there. Mm-hmm. And I kind of start playing music in my head and I start <laughs> saying, right, let's go. Oh, here we go. This is it. Filthy orcs and goblins. Are gonna, filthy green skins. Um, you know, think of your forefathers. And uh, obviously, because they'll be dwarfs. I was going to say, because you're playing dwarves, right? <laughs> Get most of the cannons. And all of a sudden, that cinematic moment just starts popping in my head. And that's, you know, a big part of, of, of the thing for me is the imagination, the storyline. And so we line all this up. We're about to go. So even back in my days running the old studio, the old place, I remember we were doing City Fight book. Mm-hmm. And we'd never done this terrain. And I just thought, you know, it's kind of embarrassing that people are going to spend $1,000 on building an army. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to ask them to go and get a deodorant bottle and a, and a Pringles pack and, and start making terrain. And I said, well, that's just terrible. So one of the first projects that I did there was, was we did the plastics for the, for the you know, ruined cities mm-hmm. so that you could have that immersive experience. And um, when we did Dead Zone, now, in, in Dead Zone, I think the, the there is no game, I don't think, where the scenery has such an impact on the gameplay as Dead Zone. Because it's the only game, I think, that is genuinely played in the third dimension. Most war games are flat. Yeah. Yes, there's hills and there's buildings, but they are blocking the ground or you're raising above it. Right. But... It's not truly interactive as in climbing up, climbing down and moving from and you getting a position to get a clean shot because at the ground level, there's no chance of a clean shot. And so we, I, I describe it as you play on a two by two by 12, I mean, 24 by 24 by 12, because it, it, it's absolutely about the, the interaction of a very confined, claustrophobic space. Cool. And it's just 
the game I love is my favourite ever sci-fi game by Country Mile. Um, you move from a block, and then the whole thing is built that they're probably in cover because they are, of course, in cover mm-hmm. because you're running from building to building and rubble pile to rubble pile, and 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 so we kind of did a load of terrain for that game, which was both popular to um, the game, the people who played the game, but also you know war gamers. Mm-hmm. Of all sides, gave you a, and because we didn't just do uh, the kind of monasteries, we did the the military buildings, and we did the habit habitual, you know, hab- where you live, mm-hmm. the, the residential kind of stuff. It, it, you could really build cities in a way that kind of hadn't been done on a war games table before. We followed that up with Dungeon Saga, mm-hmm. and that was a great uh, dungeon crawler. And because I've got a terrain fetish, <laughs> in it you got. Uh, a load of doors, and you got all the terrain for each mission. You didn't make it cards. It wasn't a flat piece of card. It was a 3D piece of plastic. Yeah. Um, and in the game, that came. Now, if I was a bit clever, I should have given you in card, and then everyone could have paid for the upgrades because, of course, it, <laughs> you know, more plastic in there meant we make, made no money from it, and I got told off by the accountants. But I got excited and looked fantastic, and mm-hmm. people loved it. Here's what was weird. For every single game we sold, we sold one or two sets of the doors and the terrain. And I thought, but anyone was playing the Dungeon Saga game doesn't need the doors and doesn't need the terrain because they've got it. Mm-hmm. And then a friend of mine who plays a lot of D&D found me up and said, I just got this plastic stuff. It's fantastic. Yeah. So it started going on in my head that maybe there was something here. And I'd seen kind of Dwarven Forge. And what they'd done is they built the dungeon. But the material they used was a bit unsatisfactory, certainly for me as a war gamer, as a miniature gamer, mm-hmm. in terms of the quality for the scatter terrain in it. And I'd never seen anyone at that point doing it. We did The Walking Dead. And in that setup, because I've learned by this point, you've got the cars and you've got the um, mission counters mm-hmm. as, as cardboard tokens. Because the accountants had beat the shit out of me. It was also a £30 cheaper game. Mm-hmm. Um there was an add-on set where you could buy the cards and you could buy the barricades and you could buy the um, vision counters. Again, now this time, normally with any expansion, you see a kind of two-for-one ratio for people to buy the game, one of them buys the expansion set. People just came out and bought the cars, bought those. And I realized that that wasn't all just going to, to, to uh, Walking Dead players. That's right. This was also going to anyone that had a kind of post-apocalyptic game, anyone that was playing any number of games because there was a scenery shortage. Um, so that was that. After that, I said, okay, we're doing terrain crane. Let's get on with it. And we spoke to some D&Ds and we said, what do you need? And you realize you can't do some of it. You either, that's your terrain option or it's not. Yeah. And so we went to Kickstarter. We did really, really well, and we spent every penny we could tooling everything we could get. So there's now a complete range, library, wizard study, you know, um, the torture chamber, the treasury, the throne room, the retail uh, space, you know, market square, um, the battlefield hill, the fences, um, walls, Everything, 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 everything. We over the first wave, we did everything historical, come fantasy, historical fantasy, but it also works very well historical temple. And the other thing is, with a lot of people in Kings of War building their army on 
uh, regiment base. Oh, yeah. Gluing it down, making it part of the story, theming it. Suddenly, these plastic pieces are just ideal if you're doing a, a, a Basilean army, putting it in a ruined temple or the temple things. Mm-hmm. Gives it character. Just adds to the whole story, but it also works well with the undead. Here's the gravestones. Here's the. So it not only appealed to the D&Ders, but it also appealed to war gamers, and it also appealed to people building dioramas. Hey, I'm building a diorama. I can either spend a week converting this cake accessory mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that's the right size and the right scale, and I'll scratch build this window and this door, or I can just buy the terrain, create door and windows, and spend my talent making the walls really work and, and adding bits of detail that, that really builds my kid up. So system agnostic works as well for you know D&D through dioramas through armies war games we've then gone on to do the modern stuff so mm-hmm. you've now got post apocalyptic we've got gothic horror coming we've got a, a kind of world war 2 um, historical setting coming with ruins and ruined buildings oh uh, now you're talking to the bolt action listeners yes you're saying correct actually warlord did a little club there where they took a few sets and push that out as a set. I think um, they just forgot to mention to anyone that it was terrain crate uh, that it was mm-hmm. there. So everyone thought it was real, and then they went, "Oh no, this is terrain crate." Well, yeah. So they they did a kind of big bundle box of that. We're doing the, the the mini sets and the individuals, but you know, guard tower before and after a bombing raid. Brilliant. So um, really good for character, good for RPGs, uh, just everything. And and we you know we're kind of working our way through it. So we've been very excited by what we've done there, and it's a a fetish of mine that's now um, two-thirds complete. That's awesome. Yeah, I literally just got a set of your industrial terrain with a lot of pipes and machinery that I'm I'm going to add to one of my existing. Uh, I have the inside of a wrecked spaceship as one of my boards, and I was thinking, yeah. I just need more scattered terrain, and it, yeah. it's perfect. Yeah. Yep. And then, you know, you start playing Dead Zone, it goes on there, and that's what's nice about terrain. If you do a nice job mm-hmm. with it, it covers you for a lot of games in a lot of ways, and you know, as you get older and you've built lots of different armies and squads and games, sometimes you just want to say, actually, I want to play on something nice. And, you know, now when I've got my Walking Dead set up, you know, I can I can pick up my buildings from my fantasy battle, fantasy games and Kings of War and, you know, just a couple of buildings might be different, but the trees and everything else. And suddenly you're playing a really nice experience. Everything's painted. And, yeah, I'm a big, big terrain fan. I think it adds a lot to the experience. Nice. Well, well, Ronnie, I, I think our time is nearing the end, but um, I hear the internet calling, uh, and that would be uh, my friend Casey asking, um, what what hints, do we have any hints about what, what's going to be coming up in 2021? I know uh, I know you're probably not supposed to say, uh, and it's okay if you can't, but, um, you know, as the guy who does like to occasionally pull the, the Santa <laughs> trick and give a couple of uh, little hints, any, any little nuggets you want to throw our way? But it must be quite late where you are on the other side of the world. I mean, mm-hmm. if, it, if it was role reversal, if it was your lunchtime in my evening, I'm sure I'd be a couple of beers in and you'd, you'd get a lot more. I mean, at the moment, we are all about the Kings of War next month. Mm-hmm. October's Kings of War month, which is where we've got the Help is Rift book. We've got mm-hmm. the two-player set with the goblins and a race that doesn't exist. <laughs> um, the goblins out the ogres are out we've, we've upgraded the ogre army there so they've got siege breakers and that's kind of completed the list and they've got a vanguard faction nice um 
so that's your, your, your kind of your King of Walker. Obviously, November is all about something to do with um, the, the big open seas. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we've mentioned that. Maybe we'll never get onto that in the next podcast. But uh, yeah, no. And then we're going to be rolling around with an awful lot of, of, of Armada in the early part of the year. Brilliant. But we've got League of Infantry, which is our players, the baddies in a dungeon crawler, which is where instead of, instead of being the goodies, you're going out being doing terrible and evil deeds um robbing off your teammates in a in a semi-cooperative occasionally cooperative kind of way it's quite lighthearted, quite good fun sorry Uh, you dropped out there what what was the name of that because that sounds right up my alley what's the name that's league of infamy and we kicked it started about a year ago because Mm -hmm. it was a board game um and yeah it's a lot of fun it's just going to be hitting in the early part of retail in the early part of 2021 brilliant uh, lovely plastics really very tongue-in-cheek very couple of beers in mm-hmm. kind of game experience um friendships will be destroyed relationships <laughs> irrevocably annihilated but an awful lot of good giggles when you know you're the scout and you'll have a card in your hand that says if you don't tell everybody what's in here this term you get an extra bit of um, uh, it's called uh, infamy, mm-hmm. and you build up your infamy, and therefore how utterly roguish you are. And so you know you'll you'll scout up there, and then kind of lie, and then the the fighter will go wading into the room and realise it was a lot more serious than he thought it was. <laughs> you've got you've got you know you've you've got to do the mission, but you'll also have side missions that will be constantly questioning you. And, and about doing your best for it. So it's a kind of dilemmas game, which is quite good fun. We thought it'd be good fun on a miniature, in a miniature space. Brilliant, brilliant. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm sorry to to do the old uh, so what's coming uh, question, but you know, sometimes you got to be in it to win it, right? Yeah, absolutely. That was great fun. Thank you. Thanks for asking <laughs> All right. Well, Ronnie, you have been a, a just a champion to come on. Thank you so much. And it is it has been you've been on my bucket list of guests for a long time. And to actually uh, to get you on has just been absolutely fantastic. You are uh, uh, so much fun to talk to. And as as my dad and uncles would say, you are what the Morins call a hot ticket. And I, I've absolutely loved every second of talking with you today. Thank you so much for making the time. I know you're super busy, especially with how much interacting you're doing with the community uh to take the time and talk to us today man it's awesome it's my pleasure there's nothing give me great pleasure than talking to our fans and, and talk about our games so thanks for giving me the chance to do it right on well guys um I, I had a lot of questions that i've incorporated into the interview today that have come literally from you the listener um if you have games that you would like me to cover if you have questions that you'd like me to ask particular guests or if you just want to reach out and say hi i know a lot of you have these days um you can reach me on facebook uh, you can find me under cast dice c-a-s-t-d-i-c-e just like the name of the podcast you are listening to right now um, if you message that page, my name is Brad. Hi, I am the only one who answers. I will, I guarantee a response. It might take me a day or two because of time differences, but um, I always answer. And uh, I, yeah, I'm blown away with how many people have been reaching out recently. Um, guys, thank you. And thank you for taking the time to listen. As I've said before, uh, podcasts don't take, you know, don't cost money for you to buy, but they do take time to listen to and time is money sometimes or more, more valuable than, uh, so thank you for taking the time to join us today. Uh, as our good buddy Casey says though, we at cast ice hope that your beverages are cold.
We hope your dice roll hot. But more than anything else, we hope that you are having fun. Ladies and gentlemen, stay safe out there. Good night. And that track